Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. If you do have a Bible, uh, read along with me. And this is a large swath of Scripture. We're normally used to reading a verse or two at the same time. This is 13 verses, but just let it, just let it rinse over your soul this morning. Paul says this, For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, and you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. There are, uh, these two are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these things in advance as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you who stretched out your arms on the hardwood of the cross to prove your love for sinners, we come before you today and we ask that you would now bring us into your saving embrace, that you would also clothe us in the Holy Spirit that you speak of. That we might know you, and not only knowing you, but we might carry over the love of, the God, uh, love of God which has been poured out abroad into our hearts upon each other. That the world might be able to look inside the church community and see something that they have been after. That we belong. And we are accepted. Apart from our works, apart from our self-righteousness, apart from our behavior, by the sheer grace of God. We're asking, Lord... That as we open up the word, your word would expose us to our deep need for grace. And I pray that we would find it and that we would be radically changed by it. For the glory of the Lord and for the honor of your name in the nations. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Holy Spirit is a very popular topic especially in evangelicalism 
especially in our church, especially in our circle of, of relationships, in our uh, circle of churches, the topic of the Holy Spirit is very popular. It's popular here in Santa Barbara and in Carpinteria and in Ventura. We love speaking about the Holy Spirit. The problem that you may have noticed or identified, which isn't a problem per se, but you might have noticed that we tend to sometimes make individualistic applications of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I mean. We live in a Western culture. It is very individualistic. So we turn almost every application of the Holy Spirit into something that we personally experience by ourselves. The Holy Spirit becomes for the church a personal experience or a matter of sanctification or a matter of personal power. Now the Bible teaches that all three of those things are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He does those things. He sanctifies us individually. He gives us individual power. He sanctifies. He gives uh, fruit in, in our lives. He gives us power. He gives us an experience of salvation. However, He does not work to the end goal of our personal experience, but He uses those personal experiences to the end goal of a Spirit-led relationship, which we call the Church of Jesus Christ. It's not predominantly about what I experience with the Holy Spirit, but how that carries over into the relationships in my life, not just on Sunday morning, in the seats, but also on Monday, in the workplace, Tuesday, in the family, Wednesday, in places of recreation, how we relate to one another. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the reasons that we tend, or at least I tend to individualize all of the, the passages about the Holy Spirit is because I read some of these imperatives, these commands by Paul as personal. Whenever Paul says, you must do this, you know, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, uh, by grace you have been saved. I hear in there a specific command to me personally. Well, that's something about the English. But Paul Anytime he gives an imperative, anytime he gives a command, almost overwhelmingly is in a plural sense. It'd be more akin to how they would speak in uh, some of the southern states when they say, y'all should do this. If we wanted to be literal with some of the imperatives that Paul gives us, we would say, y'all have been saved by grace. Paul is overwhelmingly speaking to a group of people in community, almost never to one individual to go live uh, individually in you know, the quietness of their home. He's speaking to a group of people how they must relate to one another. And it's the same with this swath of Scripture uh, in verse 16 where he says, I say then walk by the Spirit. In other words, you walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. He's literally saying, you all must walk by the Spirit together and you all will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Same in verse 18, some of the strong imperatives in this passage of Scripture. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Literally, if you all are led by the Spirit of God together in community, you are also not under the law. So what I want to do in Galatians chapter 5, segueing from last week's sermon on grieving the Holy Spirit, is to take a look at the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the ordinary rhythms of our relationships, how He works through them, and how we desperately need the presence of the Holy Spirit just to relate to one another. 
I want to do this by breaking up this passage. It's a lot of verses in four points. I believe four points emerge from this passage. One is how relationships should be. Second is how they actually are in the fallenness of our situation and in our world. Third is how they can be by the power of the gospel. And lastly, how the Holy Spirit sustains them for His glory and for our good. Look at verse 13 and 14. How relationships should be. Paul says, you are called to be free. He's speaking to Christians. He says, brothers, you are called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the law that God gave to Moses thousands of years ago on Sinai. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. When he would segue from those uh, initial four commands, not making graven images, not committing idolatry, honoring his name, honoring the Sabbath, he would move from a relationship with God, the right relationship with him, to a right relationship with people. And so those are the Ten Commandments. That's what we understand to be the law. Out of that, God would speak contextualizing about cases in which that was applied to the life of Israel. And so in the Old Testament, you have 613 specific laws and commands, all having to do with how to rightly relate to God and how to rightly relate to one another. And then Jesus comes along. And in the Gospels, he summarizes them like he does. And he says, you can count all 613 of those in two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. The second command is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, you want to obey the law of God. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love God and love each other. And Paul grabs from this saying, this is how relationships should be. Look at the law of God. Look at the law of God. We were created to love God and to love others. We were created to be in relationship with people. Not just God. But that relationship with God should spill over into relationships with people. So what does that look like? Well, Paul would go on to spell out the tangible manifestation of what obeying the law of God looks like in spirit-filled community. And he describes it as the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, we could say then, is a supernatural manifestation of the law of God being fulfilled in relationship. It is the law of God taking tangible form between you and me, between us and each other. So what are some of these? Let's break some of these down. What is love? Love is quite different from what you might understand from the the way that culture communicates it. It's different from what we understand from culture, music, all of those things. We generally get the gist from culture that love has something to do with how we feel or an emotion that we get, and it's usually contingent on what we're getting out of that relationship. I'll love you if you love me back. The Bible consistently describes love as self-sacrificial giving. Meaning, you want to serve other people for their sake and not your own. Meaning, you can do things for other people without any requirement of a reward. 
It doesn't matter whether they return the favor. It doesn't matter whether, whether they, are gra- uh, they have gratitude in their hearts for it. It doesn't even matter whether, whether they're changed because of what, the, what love you've shown them. It is not contingent on what you want out of it. You serve others for their sake and not your own. So consequently, it would follow that you're able to love people without giving up on them. You can love someone without giving up on them, even if they betray you, even if they let you down, even if they uh, don't quite live up to your expectations. If you're a loving person, the Bible describes that love as one in which you don't give up on people. Well, what's joy? Joy is different than happiness, right? Happiness is based on our circumstances, based on uh, how we're doing in life. It could be based on something as paltry as uh, the side of the bed that you rolled out of in the morning it's, or your, the cup of coffee that you had this morning. It's based on your circumstances and people, but joy is a, a glad contentment. It's glad because it's based on a delight in God. It's contentment because it's a delight in God based on God being God, not on God giving you what you want. So joy then is a delight in God for being God, not in for what he gives you. If joy is delighting in God, trust, uh, excuse me, peace is a trust in God. Peace is trusting in God regardless of what your situation looks like, regardless of how people treat you, whether other people are there for you. It's not contingent on any of those things because God never changes your peace likewise never changes. That means if you're experiencing the peace of the Holy Spirit, you'll also find you're experiencing less and less anxiety in your life, even if you run into hardship. Patience is a type of resolve. If you're experiencing the patience of the Holy Spirit, you'll find that you can deal with difficult people and difficult situations without being derailed by them. Kindness and goodness are they're a little bit synonymous with, with one another. They're, they're similar to one another. I would call it generous integrity. According to how it's used in the New Testament, kindness and goodness is a type of generosity in which you love to give of yourself to other people. However, it's integrity because you never change. If that's who you are, you're that person with this group of people and the same with that group of people. You're the same person with that person and you're the same person with this person. You're the same person in private. You're the same person in public. You're the same person and according to the Holy Spirit, you are a person of generosity. With everything that you have, you give no matter who it is. Faithfulness is confidence, loyalty. It's an assertiveness. It comes from a person who knows what they believe to such an extent that they are moving forward with a a firm confidence and courage. A person that experiences the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit is the type of person that's never held back by what's going on in their lives. They're courageous. They know what they believe. They're confident and they're assertive. They speak the truth. A person that experiences the gentleness of the Holy Spirit experiences blessed self-forgetfulness. They're a humble person. They don't often think uh, about themselves too much. They're considerate of others. They think first and foremost about other people than they do about themselves. They're known for their humility. 
And if you have all of those, you generally have self-control because it's a combination of everything prior. So in other words, if you're obeying God's law, which tells us to love one another, God's law, which is a harmony in relationship, it would make sense that what that looks like is the fruit of the Holy Spirit visibly manifested among us. We're loving one another. That We're experiencing peace. We're not derailed by our brothers and sisters. We're good and kind towards one another. We're practicing self-control. We're patient. We're faithful. We're gentle. If we're obeying God's law in community, that's what it would look like. But that's a lot harder than we think. Here's what I mean. How many of you, as I was listing off the fruit of the Spirit, were developing in your head a mental checklist of the ones that you had? Like, well, I have love, and I'm a pretty loving person. Got love down. Pretty joyful. I smile a lot. Patience. Ugh. No, patience is, not a, is a virtue, but it's not my virtue. But that's okay. I have righted the, the balance of the scales with joy and love. That's two to one, right? <clears throat> Perhaps some of you are looking down this list and you're like, you know what, I, I'm a faithful person. I'm very assertive. I'm confident. I, I know what I believe and I speak what's on my mind. I, I'm very forward with what I believe. That's, that's totally me. I, I'm not really gentle though. I, I'm not really considerate of others. In fact, in my, uh, uh, in my assertiveness, I've, I often hurt people's feelings because I, I speak too boldly. Or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you would say, you know what, I'm a gentle person. I, I'm considerate of others. I, I'm, I'm a good listener. I don't uh, think before, I, I don't speak before I think. But you know, I, I hate confrontation. So I'm, I'm, I'm one without the other. Perhaps one of you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty loving person. I, I have this kid who has been through just the gauntlet, but I stick with my kid. I'm there for them. I never give up on them. But you know, I'm, I'm losing patience. My kid's not been acting according to my expectations, and, and I have suffered a meltdown because of it. So I have love with, without patience. I have faithfulness without gentleness. I have self-control without peace. Maybe that's what some of us would say today, and Paul says that is impossible. That type of spiritual fragmentation is impossible, and this is why. When Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, he's using the noun for fruit in a singular form. It's very hard for us to, to get in English because English is so ambiguous. You can say fruit referring to one banana or a bowl full of bananas. A, fruit, a bunch of fruit over there. Our language is slightly vague and ambiguous, but Greek is extremely exacting. It can be as precise as you want it to be, and Paul is precise. He says in singular form, it is not the fruits. It's not like love is a fruit and joy is a fruit and kindness is a fruit. And if you have a couple, that's awesome. You have the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying all of them constitute in a collective manner the fruit of the Spirit. They are all simply facets of the one fruit given by the Holy Spirit. Meaning, if you're lacking one of them, you lack all of them. And here's what we sometimes do. Here's what I do when I look at that list and I say, you know what, I have a couple of these but not the others. I mistake temperament and personal character traits for the fruit of the Spirit. Because some of you are naturally assertive people, right? Oh, you speak your mind. I know because I get your emails on Monday every week. (laughs) Some of you are, are naturally gentle people. 
That's how you are. Those are not fruits of the Spirit. Those are natural temperaments which we all have. And because of the fall, because of our sinful nature, sin creeps into those natural temperaments and causes them to flow from a place of self-centeredness. So, not only are they not the fruit of the Spirit, but they come from a place of self-centeredness. And here's the disconnect. The fruit of the Spirit are spiritual characteristics that are by by their very nature God-centered. Our personal temperaments are by their very nature self-centered. And you know that you have and are experiencing the fruit of the Spirit when when God-centeredness starts to replace the self-centeredness of your natural makeup. All of a sudden, your natural temperament of gentleness begins to give way to the fruit of the Spirit, which is gentleness, but you also start to become more assertive by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You start to notice, you know what, I do love people even though they let me down, but I'm also not derailed by them. They don't harm my identity. You'd say, you know what, I'm a gentle person, I think about other people, I'm considerate, but I can also speak the truth while speaking it in love. When it's the fruit of the Spirit, all of these things grow at the same time. The problem with our natural characteristics is they flow from a place of self-centeredness. And that's the problem of our relationships. The law describes how relationships should be sin. The law, I should say, exposes in our sin how our relationships actually are self-centered. The problem is that Paul says in verse 19 through 21, if you're not growing in the fruit of the Spirit... You're growing in the works of the flesh. Idolatry, sorcery, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, hatred, strife, jealousy. You notice how all of these, almost all of these are relational? Selfish ambitions, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I'm lacking faithfulness. I'm lacking some of the spiritual uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you're saying, I'm just going to roll right into some of those selfish ambitions and hatred? Give me a break. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying those things are the extreme end of a self-centered heart, which you have if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit. That's the trajectory The law of God was never designed by God to save you and me. Because it can't. It merely describes what our problem is. The law of God, the point of the law isn't to save us. The point of the law is to crush us. It's to expose in us how self-centered we actually are. That is why we're told in verse 15, that is why we bite and devour one another. That is why we consume one another. That's why in verse 26 we are conceited and we provoke one another and we envy one another. That's why as Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says we grieve the Spirit of God because the law shows us that we are not like God. Paul would say in verse 21 at the end of 21 as I told you before that those who practice such things in other words those who are not like God will not inherit the kingdom of God. The law was written to crush our spirits to see that we are at the very core of who we are, self-centered and unlike God. 
as you're hearing some of that, perhaps you are feeling a sense of despair. Well, that's impossible. You're calling me to be perfect. You're calling me to be absolutely holy. That doesn't, that doesn't equip me to do anything. That is despairing and discouraging. That's right. That's the effect that the law has on people. It's called the curse of the law. And that's why the gospel is so good. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 3 through 4, when the law, what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. You hearing that? I'm going to read it again. What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did for you. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours, under sin like ours, in sin's domain, and as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying God wrote the law to show you your need for salvation. And when you recognize your need for salvation, he sends you salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ dies on the cross to forgive you of your lack of holiness. And he doesn't just do that. He lived a perfect life. He loved his father perfectly. He loved other people perfectly. He lived the law in perfect form so that after, in his death and resurrection on the cross, he could, for those who put faith and trust in him, say, I will exchange your sin for the righteousness that I have accumulated in my body. And we will trade places, man. You will take my place that I deserve in perfect righteousness, and I will take your place under the curse of the law. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, there is a switch. He does what was required for relationships to work. And then he says at the end in verse 4, Romans 8 verse 4, so that this could be given to those who walk not according to the flesh, uh, flesh, but according to the Spirit. He redeems us. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. All of a sudden, by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, the power of sin in relationships has been broken. And you are given the spiritual, supernatural ability to obey the law. Not just to obey the law, but to see it as beautiful. To enjoy obedience to Christ, to notice in the law of God that that is a picture of perfect human thriving and wanting to do it for the glory of God and for the enjoyment of people. But he doesn't just stop there. Jesus, after breaking the power of sin in our relationships, sends the promise of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the power to sustain relationships, and this is how he does it. The Holy Spirit then comes and applies the gospel to our hearts and to our relationships. The Holy Spirit takes what Jesus Christ did on the cross and in his resurrection and he fastens it to your life and in your relationships. And it manifests itself. This is what it looks like. It looks like fruit. Fruit starts to grow on the tree where you didn't know how to make it happen. Have you ever tried to grow an apple out of your palm? Doesn't work. 
Have you ever tried to grow love, joy, peace, and patience out of nothing? It doesn't work. The Holy Spirit brings growth. And all of a sudden, you start to notice that you actually love people even though they're wronging you. Where you were never able to do that before. All of a sudden, you notice that you're experiencing the sense of joy even though everything is crumbling around you. All of a sudden, you're noticing, I have peace. Even though the economy is crumbling, I lost my job and gas is 10 bucks a gallon. I have this deeper, transcendent sense of well-being. Where did it come from? It came from the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to your heart. That's the Holy Spirit conforming you to Jesus Christ. And that's the point of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is to make us more like Christ. The fruit of the Spirit are simply the characteristics of Jesus. As he does this, we're simply to yield to it. You can't grow fruit out of nothing. But when the Holy Spirit brings the growth of the fruit of the Spirit into your life, you can yield to him. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse 24 and 25, to be led by the Spirit to follow the Holy Spirit. It is to see the work of the Holy Spirit alive in your relationships and say, yes. Okay, you're starting to stimulate patience in my life. I'm going to be patient then. I'm not as patient as I used to be last week, but I'm more patient now because of the power of the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to practice it. I'm going to practice love. I'm going to practice joy. I'm going to practice goodness and kindness. It is simply yielding and allowing the Holy Spirit to change your life in your relationships with other people. We need the Holy Spirit. I hope that after today, by the work of the Holy Spirit, you would see our desperate need for Him to be alive in our body today. That it could be so easy to see, oh yeah, love, joy, peace, patience, do church, go through the motions, religion. We can do that. We've been doing it for years or whatever. To see underlying all the motions that there is a sense in which we need the presence of God just to function. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit in our job places. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit from nine to five in the afternoon. We need CEOs and business executives to have their minds trained by the Holy Spirit, fixated on the glory of Jesus Christ as they go into work. We need entrepreneurs and small business owners to think and to work with their hands and with their minds, but with their spirits and hearts trained on Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need artisans and poets and playwrights and songwriters and uh, hand clappers and cymbal smashers and musicians and movie makers and all sorts of, uh, of people in that genre to be going into the field with their minds trained by the Holy Spirit. We need scientists and astrophysicists and biologists who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We need baristas and grocery clerks to be filled with the Spirit of God, especially when their customers do not treat them rightly. We need athletes, surfers, football players, basketball players, high school coaches, physical trainers to go into their workplace filled and led by the Spirit of God. We need carpenters, plumbers, electricians, the guy that walks down to the meter and checks the numbers. We need them all to be filled 
and led by the Holy Spirit in a world that needs to see a community that is led by the Spirit of God in the fruit of the Spirit. And our families need the Holy Spirit. I'm a new dad. I am finding out morning by morning that I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. (laughs) And our families need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. We need women, wives, mothers who wake up in the morning saying, I cannot be the woman of noble and strong character apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We need men fathers and husbands who wake up in the morning and say, I cannot love my wife and I I cannot love her as Christ loved the church and I cannot be there for my kids and I cannot be faithful in the workplace except by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need men to wake up with a sense of desperation. We need college students in UCSB and Westmont and Channel Islands and Brooks Institute of Photography and Santa Barbara City College and Ventura College, who will wake up on Friday morning and say, I will not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. I must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we need the Holy Spirit in our church. Don't for one moment think that because we are a church that we have no longer any need for the Spirit of God to be dwelling among us. We need Him more than ever. We need the Holy Spirit in a scattered church, not on Sundays merely, but Monday through Saturday, when we have no walls to identify us as a church, yet we, belo- uh, we, being seen by the world, are also known by the world, because even though we are ordinary in appearance, we are otherworldly in our lifestyle. And listen, the world hates what they know of religion. Nobody in here second guesses that. Oh, that the world would look at the church from Monday to Saturday and see the power of the Spirit and to say, I hate what I've seen of religion all my life, but I see in that group of strange people a pure and undefiled religion. They're loving orphans. They're loving widows. They're loving me. They're stepping into my mess. They're getting their hands dirty, and yet they are unstained by the world. They're in the mess being unstained by the mess. I need that. They're experiencing joy even though everything around them is crumbling. They love me even though I have been a a jerk to them. They have incredible self-control. What is that? I need it. Let's sing this morning. But not just singing to mouth words and to go through motions, but from a standpoint of a church that recognizes that we are desperate for power and presence. A.W. Tozer in his book on the Holy Spirit, I love how he put this. He said, you know what, don't, when you get together, don't beg for the Holy Spirit to come. No, he's longing to come. You don't need to beg for the Holy Spirit to come. Wherever Jesus is glorified, the Holy Spirit comes. Churches, the lights are dimmed This morning, let's get on our faces, kneel on the floor, sit in our seats, grab hands with the person next to you, whatever it is that you need to do. 
take communion, take of the bread and the, the cup, reminding you of the sacrifice that Christ paid for you. Kneel on the carpets if you need to. Whatever it is, let's together corporately exalt the name of Jesus Christ as we simultaneously ask for the Holy Spirit to baptize us afresh and to fill us for the rest of our lives. Let's cry out. And if you're not desperate for that, ask him to make you desperate. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I would also throw into that, Lord, thank you for the the gift of the law. Thank you for the law which shows us that we need you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that you would expose in us a tremendous, divine, holy, righteous need. One that burns within our hearts for something that transcends our own life. I pray that men and women in our church today would rise up today and say, I have need of something beyond myself. And I pray that Holy Spirit, you who promised to dwell among us would simply make us more aware of your presence. Thank you that you're here. Glorify Jesus Christ in our lives and change us. By the power of God, amen.